Broken Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. This past December at MarkTwainStudies.org, I published an essay I've been working on for a couple of years. It's about Twain's habit in the final years of his life of spending hours every evening listening to his Aeolian Orchestral, a grand pedal organ he purchased for the purpose. He listened to songs over and over again, revealing in his autobiography that he associated these compositions with specific family members who had died. Music was central to his grieving process, as well as a means by which he triggered memories of his lost loved ones and sparked his autobiographical writing from this period. During my research, I had conversations with two scholars who have also been exploring the role music played in the Clemens family. Carrie Driscoll is currently editor for the Mark Twain Project at UC Berkeley. She is also Professor Emerita at University of St. Joseph. She is the author of Mark Twain Among the Indians and Other Indigenous Peoples, a book which has been mentioned many times on this podcast as well as numerous essays on Twain and other U.S. authors in journals like Studies in American Humor, American Literary Realism, and Mark Twain Annual, where she is on the editorial board. Dr. Driscoll has also been a Quarry Farm Fellow, a Trouble Begins lecturer, a coordinator of both our Summer Teachers Institute and our Quadrennial Conference, in other words, an always dependable friend of the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Dr. Driscoll's Mark Twain's Music Box from the collection Cosmopolitan Twain, is the first critical exploration of Twain's musical tastes and was inspiration for a concert program from the Orchestra of the Southern Finger Lakes. Aaron Bartram is School Programs Coordinator at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut, where she recently launched the Make Music with Mark Twain program. She has previously taught at University of Hartford and University of Connecticut, where she received her PhD in history. She's the founding editor of Contingent Magazine and has published in Chronicle of Higher Education, The Washington Post, and Commonplace. Recently, Dr. Bartram helped organize a collaboration between the Twain House and Hartford's Voices of Consinity Chamber Ensemble on the porch outside the rooms where Susie Clemens contracted spinal meningitis while practicing piano and later died, Voices of Consinity sang Goodnight Dear Heart, a composition by Elmira native Dan Forrest, based upon the poem by Robert Richardson, which is inscribed on Susie's headstone at Woodlawn Cemetery. Forrest visited Woodlawn often in his youth, and when his own family suffered a tragic loss, he remembered the lyrics Twain chose to memorialize his eldest daughter. You can hear the Voices of Consinity performance of Goodnight, Dear Heart after our conversation. To learn more about all the works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Twain Music. I hope you enjoy a music box, minstrel songs, and Mark Twain's emo playlist. Music might seem to some of our listeners to be a pretty idiosyncratic aspect of Twain studies. And perhaps it is. Uh, where better to explore such idiosyncrasies? But the more I have studied Twain's relationship with music, the more I have come to see it as not fringe research at all, but an extremely fruitful nexus. 
so much about Twain's life and work is transmuted into his musical tastes. And from my own recent research, the musical strains have helped me better understand Twain's relationship to grief, most obviously, as well as things like his writing method. But that's just scratching the surface. So I thought I'd start by asking each of you to talk a little about what intersections brought you to thinking about Twain and music in the first place. And what paths were opened up by that research that led you to revelations about Twain or about the culture and society in which he lived? Erin, would you like to go first? I was going to say you were sort of first on the case here. Okay. Uh, mine is a pretty practical thing that I am working to, to create educational programming at the museum, particularly in a point when, when we can't all be in the same place. And, and that led me to having a lot of conversations with and thinking a lot about the way arts educators in particular have struggled during the pandemic. And as a a singer, you know, I sort of lost a side gig when the pandemic began. I was really aware of how difficult that had been. And I had seen enough to know, I'd, I'd read Carrie's chapter, and I had seen enough to know that this was an important thing in the family, and that music education was incredibly important. It, it wasn't just a parlor with a piano for show, like so many people had. And so I thought, let's come up with a program that lets students and, and educators explore what music meant in this family, but also how music can be part of the interpretive work we do at the museum. How can paying attention to music in this family and in their writings help us understand and tell better stories about the family? You know, as you all know, you scratch the surface and you realize just how absolutely larded the public and private writings are with this kind of stuff. I started building this spreadsheet trying to keep track and categorize and I have my list of keywords to, to be searching for. You know, Matt, you, not, you and I and, and uh, Sarah Caulfield and, and Steve had that conversation a month and a half ago about music in the Clemens family's life. And what really struck me was how many of our own interpreters who watched that conversation all of a sudden were like, I have to rethink what I tell people. How can I use this in my own work with the public? Because this is all of a sudden a, a much richer space to tell stories in. Mm. So that I think it's gone from being sort of this smaller kind of defined educational program to that thing where like there was a channel missing from the sound of the house. And now all of a sudden we've turned it up and there's, there's stuff to explore there. I think I need to just digress a little bit and, and give some background because the the chapter on, on Mark Twain's music box is in a book called Cosmopolitan Twain. And the, the idea for the book was an outgrowth of a session at MLA about Mark Twain and cities. I was not a speaker on, on that panel, but you know people talked about Twain in San Francisco and Twain in New York. And at the end, a bunch of us were hanging around and someone said, you know, it'd be a really great idea to write a book on this topic. And because at that point I was, you know, a, a longtime resident of Hartford, they said, why don't you write the chapter on Hartford? I gladly agreed, but because the umbrella, the theme of the volume was going to be cosmopolitanism, I began to think about the house as a, as a sort of lens, right, for trying to understand 
how did it get decorated the way that it was? What sort of subliminal messages were the Clemenses trying to send to visitors who, who came in and had dinner, etc.? That focused me on the 1878-79 trip to, to Europe. And I began researching not just where they went, but what they spent their money on. And, and Olivia kept this wonderful, really detailed, itemized list. I mean, right down to a pair of gloves with three buttons. I mean, she was, she was very, very dutiful. Once I saw that list, the thing that jumped out at me was the single most expensive purchase that they made, which happened to be the custom-made music box that was purchased in Geneva. So I did not start out this essay thinking I was going to write about music. <laughs> it did, you know, it really unfolded in, I guess, a sort of, you know, intuitive way. But going back to what Aaron said, you know, with Twain, what I have found time and time again is you start to pull a thread. And then it just, you know, keeps going and going. And where does it stop unraveling? Once I began to focus in on that object, one of my quixotic quests has been to try to find out whatever happened to that thing, because boy, I'd love to see it. Because, you know, I was not able to determine all 10 of the tunes that were on there, only a partial reconstruction, but it laid bare for me, a dimension of Clemens's life and personality that I'd never really considered before. It was very much about status, you know, in an era pre-radio, pre-recorded sound. To have such an object in your house was very, very special, really extraordinary. Because it was a top-of-the-line purchase, you got to choose which songs you wanted it to play. And he initially thought that that was going to be so easy. And then he realized he didn't have 10 favorite songs. And then you have this, you know, just amazing exchange with, with Susan Warner and other friends where he's essentially tearing his hair out. What am I going to put on that music box? He knows kind of in his gut the songs he'd like to choose. And those are traditional folk songs out of a vernacular catalog. And then he knows, no, that's not quite right. It has to be something that is much more sophisticated and, and European. That's really how I ended up writing about music. Not because I set out to, but you know, I do believe that where the transformation from wild humorist of the Pacific Slope to being the cosmopolitan talk of the town, that happened in Hartford during the 20 years of, of his residence. And the way that house sort of speaks, it oozes cosmopolitanism, especially on that first floor, which I think is a kind of stage set. There's nothing haphazard about the decoration of the first floor of the house. Everything is calculated to produce a particular effect. Your description of how you happened upon the music box, it, it sounds very similar to the experience I had when I was working on my piece about his music of grief. The Orchestra of the Southern Finger Lakes did an adaptation of Carey's essay, and I had written an introduction uh, to that performance, and so I had read Carey's chapter relatively recently, but I wanted to read the chapter about the death of Jean. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to think about Twain's grieving 
I knew he'd had all of these other tragedies, all of these other losses befall, befall him. And I wanted to try and sort of explore what grief meant to him as he was working through what proved to be really the last major loss of his, his life. But as soon as I got there, I found all of these references yeah. to music that was very reminiscent of Carrie's essay, particularly in the fact that he had bought this lavish uh, Oh my God, yeah. All of the sort of class anxieties that Carrie reveals about the music box are arguably just recapitulated in the organ, although he doesn't have to justify them to the rest of the family anymore. And I've had this experience several times since where I'm doing some other kind of research and suddenly there's these references to music. And those references to music are either clarifying a theme that I already went looking for or revealing something. Mm -hmm. It happens over and over again. But I wanted to come back to Carrie makes reference to the fact that her essay began really as an essay about Hartford. The anxieties surrounding the music box are bound up with this larger set of concerns about the house. And so I wanted to sort of bring it back to Aaron and ask, what do you think it is about the specific environs of the Hartford house that lend itself so well, as you said, to the docents want to talk about music there because the house seems to reinvigorate these kinds of conversations? And why do you think that is? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges of doing house interpretation and, and for us in particular is this person lives a life not all of it is in this space. And so we have to sort of figure out spatially, where do you tell the stories of the other parts of someone's life? That he he isn't born here and he doesn't die here. But I actually think music is a really good way of thinking about this because, and thinking about space itself, because it isn't that this is a person who didn't know music before he was here. And it's not even that he's a person who didn't know some of these tunes before he was here. I think what's really important is that our contemporary understanding of the divide between popular and folk music and, and so-called art music is, is a really recent and kind of arbitrary thing. And that growing up in a musical household with a musical family, he may well have been familiar with much of this music simply in the reorchestrated form of piano reductions. And that's what I think is really interesting when we think about the music box is that it's not just what tunes go in there. It's sort of like, imagine if you could only listen to 10 songs for the rest of your life and you had to pick from every song you know, but you could only have them played on the banjo and that's what they're going to be. <laughs> How Lohengrin it, it is kind of brought into a different space through reorchestration. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about is the way that this house And the time he spends here and the experience he has here isn't just this kind of rube emerging into society and trying to figure out how to make his way. It's things that he knew at a distance. All of a sudden, he can embody them and live them and be in the spaces. He can go to operas. He can see things premiered. And I think that is almost where the the really interesting thing for me is, I mean, if you don't know those tunes and you don't know what 
is being used to sort of signify bourgeois pretensions and, and things like this. You don't, uh, all I can think of is rather old at this point episode of, of Doctor Who that takes place millions of years in the future. And it's sort of like, let's listen to a bit of art music from the earth and it's toxic by Britney Spears. <laughs> For us without knowing all of that and really becoming familiar with what this music meant and how it was consumed and performed. I don't think that it necessarily changes any of our interpretations. It enriches them and it lets us pull more meaning out of what's there. It's not that we all of a sudden discovered a treasure trove of unknown things. We just have found more ways to pull it out. And that can be really important because what you're trying to do in 45 minutes with the public is find a point of connection. Being a famous writer is probably not a point of connection for many of your students. But to think about the experience of you've always loved a piece of music, that's different from being able to go to Carnegie Hall and hear it and be a person who does that. So I think for me, even as much as we're talking about what he becomes here, I think it's always important to keep that he himself is, is not totally becoming a different person. He is sort of enriching certain aspects of his life and bringing up certain levels of himself. Music has such a rich lattice work of signification. And I mean that in a couple of different ways. One, when we start talking about the actual pieces in the music box or the pieces that he chose for the orchestra or the pieces that he associated with the deaths of his family members, once you start researching them, you realize they're so loaded with these performance histories, with their relationship sometimes to operas and other narratives. There's the potential to explore each of these individual pieces of music as having this kind of symbolic weight, either for Twain personally or for the culture of which he is a part. But also, as you were describing the students kind of having a relationship to music at the house, they can all sympathize with the idea of building a playlist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that playlist both represent a personal relationship to the music, a kind of private relationship to the music, but then also maybe I'm going to share it. Maybe I'm going to make a mixtape. Maybe there's an audience for this and maybe I don't want them to know I like Britney Spears, right? Or maybe I want them to think of me in a certain way based upon the music I choose. And clearly Carrie's essay is all about Twain's overthinking <laughs> what music is going to represent. And it's the equivalent of sort of you've carefully curated somebody's playlist in, in a very specific order. And then they're like, oh, I just put it on shuffle. And yeah. Oh, well, you know, um, it's funny that you say that, Matt, because I've known Steve Courtney for a very long time. And so he was getting pretty regular updates on this quest that, that I was on. And he said, oh, Carrie, I know the, what the name of this essay should be, Mark Twain's Playlist. <laughs> so. Well, the reason I even thought to do music was because two years ago in June, when I had just started here about two weeks before I went up to Elmira for the for the teacher mm -hmm. institute and Matt you read us part of that and I was frantically writing everything down writing all the names down and I came home and we built in the office a little thing that was we just called it Mark Twain's emo playlist 
<laughs> and would sort of listen to it. We even started thinking about that. What is the playlist for our study of this person? I have yet to take all the other stuff we found and make a very long playlist. Even since uh, we had talked during that summer te teachers Institute, you have found lots of references. I have found lots of references. Like it, it seems to never stop. One of the things I want to ask you both and Aaron kind of brought it up earlier. One of the codes that music offers is a sense of class identification. I think one of the, the real challenges of this kind of research is trying to understand how that music speaks in a culture that is now fairly distant and a, a culture that is also you know, multiplicitous, right? The Twain is trying to understand how music reads to an audience in Hartford, but also he's going to all these performances when he visits Europe, when he goes to Germany, he's seeing, you know, the debut of famous operas in Italy, but he's also always thinking about this broader proletarian audience that he associates with different styles of American folk music. What do you think music means, right? Or what are some things that people should think about how musical culture exists in the 19th century that might be different from how musical culture exists in the 21st century? Well, but Matt, you, I don't want to steal your point because you made a really excellent point when we talked in January that I've been thinking about the, the difference between private performance, public performance, and, and the possibilities of private consumption, which I, I assume you will talk about at length because that was a really good and, and provocative point. I can reiterate it. I hadn't necessarily even thought about it again since then, but I absolutely, for me, this is one of the distinctions. My consumption of music, and I imagine many of our listeners, their consumption of music is primarily private. Yeah. Oftentimes on headphones or in their own home or in their car, singing in the shower, right? Singing during the, the morning commute. For the most part, I think increasingly, we consume music as individuals and we make our own individual playlists and we choose songs for certain occasions, certain moods. But our relationship to music is largely a personalized and private one. That clearly could not be the case for the vast majority of the 19th century. Carrie draws our attention to this technology of the music box, which was not available to very many people, was one of the first forms of recorded music, right? Something that you could consume privately. You could play the piano for yourself, right? You could, you could be a musician in private. But for the most part, the vast majority of people were consuming music in some sort of public venue, right? Whether that was going to an operatic performance right? or a symphonic performance, or whether that was going to a church revival, right? Or a minstrel show, or whether it was going to a party or a dance. Yeah, right? a social Having setting. Somebody, yeah. A social yeah. setting, right? A, a smaller gathering, right? Perhaps even just the family. Yeah. Right, which was clearly something that was true in the Twain household. That sense that music almost always had some sort of social dynamic, some sort of public dynamic that maybe it's not associated for most of us now. Yeah. And collaborative in a lot of ways. That, that when it's private, 
unless you're just sitting there noodling around on the piano and playing for yourself, I guess it begs the question, can you be a consumer and a performer at the same time? But that even when you're doing it in these private spaces, it's not passive. It's not, it's not always wholly individual. Yeah, I think that's excellent. There's not really passive consumption of music in the 19th century. There's an oral tapestry for us when we go to the grocery store, when we go in any sort of public setting, and there's lots of passive consumption of music now. And that all was almost non-existent for Twain. One of the volumes that uh, we're working on at the Mark Twain Project is an edition of Puddinghead Wilson. And the book is going to have three separate sections. The first version of Putnett Wilson, which has never been published before, it's the Morgan Manuscript, then the revised version, which is the one that's familiar to all of us, and then those extraordinary twins. So I got to read the Morgan Manuscript for, for the first time a couple of months ago, and there was a passage in it that really is so germane to this conversation. So can I just read like a paragraph or so? Count Luigi and Angelo Capello, all right, in the first version in the Morgan manuscript are conjoined twins. In the published version, of course, he separates them out, although there are some strange kind of residual anomalies that refer, reflect back on their previous <laughs> form. But the twins are a study in opposites. You know, Twain has a lot of fun, sort of slapstick style fun. One of them is a teetotaler. The other one is a heavy drinker. One of them is a free thinker. The other one is devoutly religious. One smokes, one doesn't. One will take drugs when he feels ill. The other one won't, right? And this also extends to their taste in music. So one of them's a bass, the other one's a tenor. So they arrive in Dawson's Landing and they're staying with Patsy Cooper, right? Who is renting out a room to them. And they read for a little bit the first night they, they get there and then they, they decide that they're gonna sing. But of course they don't sing the same song. They sing two different songs. So the next morning at breakfast, before the twins come downstairs, uh, Aunt Patsy is having a conversation with her daughter, Rowena, and it goes like this. <laughs> Mercy on me, how should I know? I've hardly set eyes on them yet. This is Patsy adding, they made considerable noise after they went up. Noise, why ma, they were singing and it was beautiful too. Oh, it was well enough, but too mixed up, it seemed to me. Now, Ma, honor bright, did you ever hear Greenland's icy mountains sung sweeter? Now, did you? If it had been sung by itself, it would have been uncommon sweet. I don't deny it. But what they wanted to mix it up with old Bob Ridley for, I can't make <laughs> out. Why, they don't go together at all. They are not of the same nature. Bob Ridley is a common rackety slam bang secular song. One of the rippingest and rantingest and noisiest there is. I am no judge of music and I don't claim it, but in my opinion, nobody can make those two songs go together right. Now, if they are gonna sing duets every night, I do hope they will both sing the same tune at the same time. For in my opinion, a duet that is made up of two different tunes is a mistake especially when the tunes ain't any kin to one another that way. So you've got one of the twins singing a very famous missionary hymn, and then the other one singing a tune from a minstrel show. I actually Googled the lyrics for old Bob Ridley, and it's sung in African-American vernacular. 
De first time I ever got a lickin', twas down at the forks of the cotton pickin'. Oh, it made me dance, it made me tremble. I golly, it made my eyeballs jingle. Oh, Bob Ridley. In a nutshell, there you have it. These are sort of the two sort of strains of, of Twain's musical taste, literally embodied in this one conjoined body. That's wonderful. That's- that's hilarious. It's really, really fantastic. And it, I mean, it, it reveals just how Twain is very self-conscious as, yeah. as you show in, in your essay about the music box, but like that continues throughout yeah, this his is, career. Uh, you yeah. know, this is what, more than a decade and a half later, right? I mean, if you're thinking about right. the music box, 1878, right? And this is the early 1890s. You know, you're right. There is that self-consciousness. Now I think he's perhaps more comfortable in his skin and can joke about it more. Yeah, yeah. He chooses for himself to have the tune of Sweet Afton sung to him Mm. as as a memorial. Although for all of his family members, his wife and both of his daughters, he chooses far higher arts, right? You know, Schubert and Chopin and is his sense that he cannot fully appreciate what we call classical music, right? Symphonic music. Is that something he puts on? Is yeah, that a pose? That he, yeah. It needs to be part of the Mark Twain yeah. identity. I mean, he could stop going right. if he didn't really like. Mm. So I read some of his descriptions of opera, and it's one of those things where, like, psycho seems cliche because it created the cliches. In a lot of ways, I have to remind myself that parts of Roughing It, these are just some of the first articulations of this growing sense of divide between art and popular music. But I also sort of think, like, you could not go to these like there are other ways for you to perform this class identity mm-hmm. that that don't require you to go there but i also i mean it reminds me a lot of my own sort of experiences not growing up in any kind of tradition that knew any of this and i was a singer and an instrumentalist but it wasn't really till college that i ended up diving deep into some of this work which i think my family finds strange but also this is a man who goes to great lengths to ensure his children's musical education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He expresses the desire to know it, to want to be able to access it, and that I'm just too lazy to learn. He also clearly recognizes the power of some of these things. I mean, in some ways, I wonder if he's just often overwhelmed by some of the forms that he encounters in their initial state, that a distillation on the piano or in the music box is one thing. But for someone who sort of feels at this level, it makes me sort of think of people I've known who were synesthetes, who who just find it overwhelming. And knowing what he uses music for in his own emotional state, I wonder if there are times when these caricatures of the opera singers and the conductors is almost a way to provide some distance from a thing that he also very much recognizes the the power of for himself as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Twain's twisted ambivalence about sentimentality yeah. seems to be a, an issue there too, right? Yeah. That, that he's yep. a little ashamed of how much music makes him feel, but he nonetheless loves to feel and he seeks it out over and over again. You know, certainly in the final years of his life when he's having these same songs played for him over and over again, exactly because they generate an intensity of emotion. And they're often the same things he was making fun of the passengers on the Quaker City for listening to. You know, that uh, in one register, he's mocking that kind of mawkish sentimentality and that these people would think this was art and not very much later positioning himself 
in a very different way. Yeah. I think there's a, a strong analogy or analog, Aaron, uh, to what you're saying about music in terms of his response to the visual arts. Mm-hmm. There's a really wonderful passage from The Innocence Abroad where he's in Italy and, you know, they're dutifully touring gallery after gallery. And he talks about sort of, you know, miles of paintings. And then he stumbles upon an alcove in which there's just one painting that's hanging. And he is no longer overwhelmed. He doesn't feel the need to sort of push back defensively to keep it at arm's length. And he's in this one small enclosed space and it's one picture and he can digest it. He can absorb it. He can really interact with it. One that he kind of chews on these things for a long time. I mean, I remember sort of these assignments in college where it would be let's take apart a piece of music. And I remember being really anxious that it would make me not like the music anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Was this piece we all found very moving. And then we had to just absolutely rip it apart and analyze it for weeks, weeks, weeks. And in that period, we didn't listen to it at all. And then the professor sort of played it when we were finished with this project. And everyone just had an even more overwhelming reaction to it. And everyone was sobbing. And I sort of think about the way he can kind of hems in this this sentimental reaction and then listens to a piece over and over and over again in different settings, in different times as a, as a particular kind of processing technique. Yeah, yeah. I, I think is familiar to a lot of us um, and that you don't get tired of a song. There's something kind of modern about that too, right? Is that this, you know, this ability to choose to re-listen to something over and over and over again at your own whim in a setting of your choosing, only the very wealthy would be able to do. He sets it up through the music box first and then later through the orchestral, right? He sets himself up to be able to do that kind of intensive analysis, listening, right? The kinds of things that we might, putting a song on repeat, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't possible. The focus of just listening to it. Yes. It's not yeah. background right. music. Right. It is the object of analysis, right? Oh. An object of interpretation. Yeah. Um, I often come back to this anecdote that Max Eastman tells about they, they installed a new church organ in the Park Church here in Elmira. Uh, and Max Eastman was living in the church. His, uh, his mother was the primary pastor at this point. Twain comes to see the new organ because he's always fascinated with what the newest technology. Comes to see the new, new organ just after it's been installed. The organist asks what he would like them to play. And he suggests a piece by Wagner. And then he, he looks at Eastman as, as it's being played. He says, this is fine. It's all up here but I'm way down here. Performing for this child, right? Eastman's, you know, maybe seven or eight years old at this point. He's performing for this child who's his only audience, presumably in this moment, the idea that he is always going to be the kind of rustic border South ruffian who won't be able to appreciate Wagner. But he knows to request Wagner, yeah, right? He yeah. knows enough about that piece of music that it's going to demonstrate the capacities of this organ, right? Uh-huh. Being both high and low at the same time, I think says a lot about Twain's persona, his character, his work. He's a slippery fellow. Yeah. 
he can play with it and say high and low. But I, I think his relationship, public and private to it, shows that he, he has a lived experience of music that belies that dichotomy and lets him play with what is expected of him. I, although it is sort of amusing that he would do this with a seven-year-old who's like, I don't understand. Carrie, the wonderful passage from the Morgan manuscript that you read leads us into a conversation that I, I definitely wanted to have about how race is coded in Twain's musical taste. That's another way in which looking for or finding music in Twain's corpus of works oftentimes then reveals something or, or forces us back into con other conversations. And that happened for me recently with a book by Eric Lott called Black Mirror. The book is largely about blackface and minstrel performances in 19th century America, but he has a chapter on Twain that includes some of the passages from the autobiography about Twain's even late in, in life, life celebration yeah. for minstrelsy. And clearly that's caught up in the nostalgia of his youth that both forms of black spiritual music and blackface minstrelsy would have been cultural forms that he would have been familiar with in his Missouri childhood and, and certainly up and down the Mississippi River in his early yeah. adulthood. Uh, and he shows a lasting affection for those forms, evident, for instance, in his love for the Fisk yep. Jubilee yeah. Singers, um, but also in his ongoing wish to, you know, hear the minstrel songs again. And so clearly it's, it's caught up in nostalgia, but there's something else going on there as well. And I think our conversation about sort of high and low art leads us in one direction, right? Is that tortured discernment between high and low art that Carrie's essay handle, handles so well is also bound up in Twain's love of sort of racialized form. Is it okay for me to like black spiritual music? Is it okay for me to like blackface minstrelsy? Are these forms of acceptable art consumption for a now bourgeois Hartford <laughs> intellectual? One of the few places where we see him overcoming that distinction between high and low art is the fact that he remains committed to black performance and black performers, right? And uh, particularly black spiritual music is something that he sees as needing recognition, needing to be better ingratiated into a proud tradition of American art. Yeah. I wanted to sort of try to parse out to some extent the racial elements of Twain's musical tastes. I have a couple of uh, thoughts I, I would like to share. And one is, and I quote this letter in part in the Music Box essay, he's still courting Olivia, it's 1868, and he says, tunes are good remembrancers. You know, the minute I hear certain songs, I see a face. And, and so I think that what you're talking about in terms of that nostalgic power, Matt, to hear those spirituals, to hear the minstrel songs, that's almost like getting into a time machine. He's eight years old again, and, and it's very vivid, and it's sort of evoking. I think evocative is, is just the, the right word here. 
there's there's that really powerful emotional draw that kind of re-immerses you in your past, in your youth, in a, in a place that, that you haven't been to for, for a very long time. And I think that helps to explain the enduring power. It's a huge question, and I'm thinking particularly about the chapters from the autobiography that are published in the North American Review, you know, where you have that famous lyrical reminiscence of the Quarles Farm, you know, and how the black face is as familiar to me now, you know, and uh, as it was back then. It's hard to, I think, separate the real sort of emotional, nostalgic pull from the sociocultural reality, you know, of, of that childhood world. Um, But the other thing in terms of, if we broaden out the the topic here uh, in terms of race, in the research that I did for my book, I came across a very popular ballad from the 1840s called The Spotted Fawn. And the spotted fawn is a beautiful young native woman, you know, who is being courted by someone from, you know, the most noble chief of, of the tribe. The song was sung so ubiquitously that it actually spawned a parody called The Spotted Frog. And The Spotted Frog is on the front page of one of the Hannibal newspapers in the 1840s. That detail is telling. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier about mawkish sentimentality, because you have this kind of idealization of the not just the noble savage, but the vanishing Indian, right, in in the spotted fawn, because, you know, the teepee is surrounded and then burned by by white settlers and both the spotted fawn and her, her new husband perish. But then you have the spotted frog, you know, which has these two kind of bullfrogs sitting on a log in an industrial wasteland. The fact is that that music was so integral a part of culture in in the 19th century and that's that's i think um an important thing to remember about his childhood i've been keeping a list of his own parody verses as i come across them and it just reminds me you know we have all of them instead of lord for thy tender mercy's sake it's lord for thy tender juicy steak and yeah, you know, yeah. this, is a, this is a really proud proud tradition that was something i had to think up a lot about in selecting the pieces i'd use in the in the program for students because an awful lot of the music that he liked, some of it is music that just simply shouldn't be performed. Others of it is is music where the nuance required to perform it is not a thing I can necessarily guarantee. And so I had to sort of think about what what I wanted to offer as options. And there'll be pieces where teachers will say, but I know he loved this piece, but there's a reason why we're not folding that in. But it made me realize I hadn't thought about it. That letter he sends to Tom Hood about the Fist Jubilee Singers in, you know, saying, please go see them is a a piece that I have in Huck Finn program now, because it does both show this support for Black performers, and yet I have students do the calculations. It's 1873 or whatnot, and so enslavement is nearly a decade out at, at the latest. And, you know, it sort of implies that there is an experience required to sing this music correctly to make these plaintive melodies actually sing. And we sort of think these are singers who are in college. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How much of enslavement at max do they remember? 
it really walks the line. It, it's not the sort of this group has this in their blood per se, but also the ways that that is sort of dangerously reductive about what the black experience is. Yeah. That a personal experience of enslavement is sort of what this music is about. What happens when we are a generation out of that? Yeah. Is that experience inherited? And I think it's a really useful thing. We just passed out of Black History Month, which is when I think about and talk to directors who are programming concerts for that month, more people have immigrated to the U.S. from Africa since 1965 than were transported in the transatlantic slave trade. The, the kinds of Black music that have become a part of even the kind of low, high art choral canon really reduce the experience to one thing. Yeah. I can understand the well, I, I got less racist. Can't I at least keep a minstrel show? Like, I got rid of the really bad parts. Can't I just keep this one that's a little fun? But the connection between that sentiment and a lot of art performance today, I think, is an important one, especially when so many of the pieces I've sung, I can picture the typeface. It's so distinct. The William Dawson Tuskegee Institute series. You know, why do we have this in dialect from these periods? How do mostly white choirs sing these things? I think looking at that nostalgia, at what it evokes, is really important because he's saying these things at this really important hinge moment. How are we going to remember this period? And is this a way where we can package a good thing mm. about it? And can we separate a good thing right. from the rest of it? I, I love your answer because, again, it's exemplary of this thing that happens when we talk about Twain in music. Suddenly we are seeing things that are relevant to his entire canon. A lot of what you just described sounds an awful lot of like how we need to talk about Huckleberry Finn and Tom yeah. Sawyer, right? That yep. these things are simultaneously works of burlesque, of satire, ways of exploring the culture of the antebellum period with a degree of skepticism and, and humor. But they are all. They also have lots of moments of nostalgia. They can easily be read as idle. How the sort of musical traditions that are associated with a plantation culture get adapted to a emancipated world, I think that's a fascinating question. And it it is contained in Twain. What are those tunes remembrance? Yeah. What gets, exactly. What gets remembered exactly. when he hears that? And can he think about the people who sang those songs without being nostalgic for the reason why they were there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the plaintive sound that is distinctly associated with that music? We talk about all the feelings he has when he listens to music. What feelings is he having when he listens to that music? He wrote everything else down. I wish he'd been more, <laughs> more explicit about that. I wanted to bring our conversation back also to this question of education. I wanted to, to ask Carrie, whose work on Twain's contributions to education for girls, I have always found very interesting. How music is bound up with the gender dynamics of feminism in the late 19th century. The Saturday Morning Club was a, a group of young Hartford women that Twain was very deeply involved with during the years he, he lived in town. The 
programs, the annual programs. So they met from October through May of each year. And it was a weekly meeting, but they alternated between lectures by visiting speakers and then discussion sessions that were restricted to just the young women, right? Members only. The programs have been preserved for the most part. There are a couple of years where they're missing. One of the striking things about those programs is how many of them are devoted to music. They would have long stretches where they were, you know, discussing Mendelssohn or, you know, the romantic tradition in in European music. Again, I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm I'm harping a lot on class hierarchies, but these were privileged young women. They were not, for the most part, college-educated women, and I think that has to do more with the time period that even if you could have afforded to go to college, chances are you didn't. Becoming conversant with the traditions of European music was essential to being a well-rounded individual. And in fact, one of the the programs actually is uh, Susan Warner coming and, you know, she was a, a gifted pianist performing, but then also telling them about her favorite pieces. In terms of, of the Clemens girls, uh, this is, you know, I'll offer this anecdote and make of it what what you will. But in the early 1890s, you know, Twain was such a kind of indefatigable and eclectic reader. He came across an article on Indian music, right? Native American music. And I, I can't recall off the top of my head, it may have been in Collier's or, or something like that. You know that his track record of attitudes towards Native Americans leaves a great deal to be desired. And so I was really struck that this article, first of all, engaged him. He, he read it and thought about it. But then he writes to Livy and says, oh, you've got to show this to the girls. The girls will be really fascinated by this. In it, he compares uh, musical traditions of different tribes with European music and says, look, it's just as complex, it's just as sophisticated as the work of Wagner. That may have been sort of the hook that piqued his interest and then had him advise, oh, you have to have the girls look look at this. But it tells me that their, their musical education was fairly eclectic. That letter he writes when they're in Europe, and it's to whoever lives in the apartment next door. I'm very sure you understand, sir. Our apartments are laid out in the same way. I understand that you don't like listening to my daughter play piano, but you know as well as I do, she can't put the piano on the other side of the room because that's where there's a fireplace. And I just want to let you know that her teacher says she's progressing very well. And that means she's going to have to start practicing even early in the morning. <laughs> best, best regards, Mark Twain. You know, we know about the sort of tensions as the girls mature. This is always a way to to connect back with them and to to really connect with them. Sort of, I will play while you sing. Mm. That it really is this family thing. It kind of brings me back to like the idea of two conjoined twins who hopefully aren't even the same part, who could sing a duet. Right, right, I know. (laughs) And choose instead to sing two different songs. It's sort of the mirror, the inverse of of the family really using music as, well, if we're all singing, we can't be 
disagreeing or yelling at each other or doing anything else. The group I sing with Consinity is harmonious sound out of different parts coming together. And I can imagine it being a thing where, oh, I read this and it made me think of you, or let's sing the song could be an olive branch or... Yes. So many of his most positive memories that he describes in the autobiography or in letters and other private writings are surrounding the piano or singing together or seeing his children perform. I mean, enormous pride associated Mm -hmm. with seeing the girls do well, right, uh, at their recitals. We see Twain's fatherly pride associated with music over and over again, which suggests this was a sort of key dynamic for bringing him together with his daughters. Plus, he, more than anyone, knows the vulnerability of the stage. You know, he knows what it means to get up there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they they screw it up. Is it worse than that speech about poets? You know, (laughs) yeah, your dad is really well known, but also he's had some real... (laughs) <laughs> Real rough nights up there. And and also I can imagine could understand as the girls go through their own identity challenges, the useful displacement that the that the stage and and performance mm-hmm. um, tell us a little bit about the music that the Mark Twain Hodgson Museum collaborated with Voices of Consinity to perform late last year. <laughs> so uh Voices of Consinity is a small chamber ensemble that I sing with. And we had, like everybody else, not been able to perform. And I don't remember the last time that we sang for an audience. If we had known then that would be the last time, how do we perform masked and distanced? And is it possible to do this? Because we didn't know how long it would be. And the, the idea that we would just never be able to do this again was unthinkable and we figured there isn't anything wrong with trying to adapt. Starting in the summer of last year, started testing out spaces and we were always scouting for interesting spaces to sing in. And I was just like, well, there's lots of interesting spaces here. And I knew the piece, Good Night Dear Heart, which is a setting of the poem from Susie's Headstone. And it, it's a very frequently programmed piece. It's sung an awful lot. And so I just sort of suggested to our director, Sarah, maybe we could think about the porch here as a space. You know, we have all the dimensions of the internal rooms because the fire marshal needs to know these things. But I was out there with a yardstick trying to figure out how much spacing we could do and which way you could sing and, and where you can record it. So on uh, an unseasonably cold uh, October morning, we came and did some recordings here. It is often a song that makes people very emotional because it gets sung at funerals. It's just very, obviously a very sad piece and the composer's own story is very sad that goes with it. I think probably the first three recordings, I barely sang anything because I, it was sort of the weight of Susie and say all in this place um, singing it. It was a bit of an indulgence. Um, we sang some other things here and did other recordings and they were great. And it was a good space to sing and play. But having spent the summer steeped in this, I was like, if we're going to be singing outside, why not start using all of this work that we've done? One of the great things we get to do here is that people come because they're interested if they are in Mark Twain, the writer. And we hope that they often leave also interested in Sam Clemens, the husband and father and friend. This was a really wonderful piece to do what music does, to make you think of someone as a, as a human person, not just an inaccessible 
writer. We talk about the house as Twain's performance space in a lot of ways. There's more there and more that can be done. And when I was working with the Farmington High students, to work with students who were coming to this space primarily as musicians, you know, they're coming in virtual and I'm tilt the lid of my laptop so they could look up. Immediately we're like, oh, could we come sing in that space sometime? They immediately looked at it in a performance space as a really different way without much prompting. And I was like, all you have to do is sort of suggest, as, as this conversation sort of demonstrates, suggest a different angle. And all of a sudden, yeah, it just opens up. So for people who think they know everything about Twain or that there's nothing, there's nothing more to be discovered. You're wrong, regardless of who you are. Always more, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, always. always. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Carrie. This has been lovely. My pleasure.